Today on More Than a Test, we are joined with Dr. Inetta Wright. She is the superintendent of Cincinnati Public Schools. But if you've lived in Duval, Florida or Detroit, Michigan, and your kids go to school there, you might have heard her name before because she has been in some of the top jobs in those districts as well. In fact, when she was asked to be the deputy superintendent in Detroit, her daughters were in high school in Duval, Florida. They told her, we believe in you, mom, you gotta go but we're gonna stay here and finish school. And she did. And in that way, she has served schools and she has served students in multiple places. And now Cincinnati is so lucky to have her leading there. And we are so lucky to have her here as a guest. Superintendent Wright, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I know you're starting school in just a few weeks and you are the superintendent of Cincinnati schools. Tell me about Cincinnati. So Cincinnati is a wonderful place. I am the 28th superintendent in Cincinnati Public Schools. So in just a few short years, Cincinnati will be celebrating its 200th year Cincinnati Public Schools birthday. Uh, so that's coming up uh, in a short time. So we're really excited about that. Currently, we serve about 36,000 students in 65 schools uh, across the district. We're the largest school in the region and we're the second largest school district in Ohio. Okay. And so when you second largest school district in Ohio, you've got kids coming from all over. What, like, tell me a little bit about the kids. Tell me a little about the teachers. What is it like 7,000 staff members that are underneath you? We do. We have 7,000 staff members. Of those staff members, about 2,500 of them are actually teachers. Um, and then we have all of the other positions that go along with support staff uh, and the work that's happening in school buildings. So our students in our particular region, um, we are in what we call the tri-state region. And so in our particular region, in our area, we're the largest school district in our area. So there are quite a few school districts around us that are like in the suburbs of Cincinnati, if you will. But we are the largest school district. We also service um, in terms of transportation. We transport all of the students in our in our city um, to our non-public and charter schools as well. So you do transportation for everybody. We do transportation for everybody. That has got to be so hard. I, I didn't know that until you just said it, but I, I know at least in Colorado where I'm from, there's a huge shortage of bus drivers. This is a really hard position to fill. Why are you taking that on? And is it hard? It's required by the state. So by the state, the school district, which is the local school district, is responsible for transporting all of the non-public and charter school students that would the, the schools that would like transportation. So it is very, very challenging um, because transportation is already a challenge and it makes it even more of a challenge uh, because of there are so many things that we don't control about it. And so we've had to do this year. We're expecting some great things to come from transportation because last year was just a real problem for us. So we have really worked hard with our non-public and charter schools and to make sure that we are able to get all of our students to school on time. And like things you don't control, you mean stuff like you don't control who they enroll, you don't control where they come from or what time of day they start, right? So you have to get them there on time and none of that is your, your decision. All of that is correct, what you just said, right? Wow, that that is incredible. It's one of I, I often hear superintendents tell me something that I don't expect. That is probably one of the biggest unexpected things because transportation, I know what a mess it is. And then to be doing it for schools that maybe are, are serving a little bit of a different situation. How interesting. It's it's interesting that you say, you know, the state mandates it because part of the reason I was so thrilled to talk to you is Ohio has been really interesting this year in literacy. Um, I know at one point the governor, I think it was the governor of Ohio was saying like, we're banning balanced literacy. We're only doing science of reading. And, and that was somewhat controversial. Tell me a little bit about your experience of that, because, you know, I'm reading about it from afar. 
Right. So my experience specific to our school district is our school district has been committed to the science of reading for a period of time. So I have been the superintendent here since May 2nd of 2022. So just a little over a year, about a year and four months. But when I walked into the district and look at, at really the historical information from the district, the district really has been committed to the science of reading. So it really didn't cause as much of a stir for us because that was already our commitment. Uh, we really focus on making sure that our students are getting the fundamentals when it comes to reading. I think for some of the other areas, it's just like with anything, uh, when you start to think about mandating certain things, there are people that really believe strongly in what they believe in, even if the research and the data says something else. And so giving them an opportunity to voice that, to share that, and then to use what you know to be true and factual to do what's necessary to improve outcomes for your children. Okay, so Science of Reading was an initiative that you inherited as a superintendent. It was already happening in Cincinnati um, schools. And so you inherited that. Is the, And I'm assuming you're just planning to continue it. <laughs> Absolutely. In, in, a, in a very strong way, because as an educator, I've been committed to the science of reading for a very long time. My background is actually math and special education. I'm degreed in special education and, cert, and, at, at, and in Florida at one point certified in math, uh, eligible for, for, for teaching math. And I learned early on as a middle school principal that there was a challenge with the way that we were teaching students reading. And so uh, for those that follow me on social media, I was able to co-author a piece with uh, two other superintendents um, from, um, from, from throughout the country, one from Texas and one from Maryland, where we really talked about our experiences with the science of reading and why it's so important as system leaders that you are committed to what's happening in classrooms instructionally. Sometimes we get so caught up and so involved in just the leadership part, just the management, running the districts, the politics. But at the end of the day, what matters the most is what's happening in classrooms. What experiences are students receiving? What curriculum are they using? Not just for reading, but what are they using for math? And what are they using for science and social studies? And how is that speaking to them as individuals and making sure that they are getting what they need to, to absolutely be successful? All right. Let me ask you two questions on that. Now that you are in the, in the top job, and I know, I mean, you're dealing with everything from transportation and food and everything. And how, how do you stay connected to the classroom? So for, personally, for me, it is a strong commitment. I start every day. Uh, my assistant will share. My calendar is blocked every morning because I start every day in schools. And so I block my calendar from about 8.30 until 11 every day so that I can go to schools. Now, of course, if I have committee meetings or things like that, that I have to attend here at the office, I do that. But it, it, it sends the message to start with that that is where the day starts for me. Um, when I came to the district last school year, in, the, in my first 30 days, I visited 45 of our schools already. And by the end of that summer, I had visited all 65 of them because I started in May in the earlier part of May and school was out the end of May. So I was uh, really visiting during the summer as well, just to make sure that I, I got onto the physical plant. This year, I visited. I have visited all of my schools and many of them multiple times. And so it really is a great feeling because at one point when I would go into schools, you know, people were concerned like, oh my goodness, the superintendent is here. Now they're like, the superintendent is here. And so I'm able to go into classrooms and you know, talk to students or see what it is that they're working on or what they're excited about or engage in what they're learning. So it really keeps me motivated, but it also keeps the main thing, the main thing for me. And that's connecting with the students. 
That's really amazing. And I love that. Um, I'll tell you, I was a kindergarten teacher in Denver at one point when I was young in my career and the superintendent was supposed to come visit my classroom and like our whole school, like we had signs for it. Like it was a big deal. Like he hadn't come in like 10 years, right. To our school. And, and he canceled an hour before he canceled because he was announcing he was running for some sort of public office or something like that. And I remember my teach my students were heartbroken. So I'm sure your schools, your teachers and your kids all love that. Like you do show up and they, they, they know you, they can see you. So that's, that's really cool. So the other thing I wanted to ask you, so you said science of reading is something, you know, you've already, you believed in before you got to Cincinnati, you inherited it when you got there and you're continuing on. What is something that you inherited that you're leaving behind? That is a great question. Um, I think that we are, you know, we spent a lot of time this year auditing, really seeing where we are and what we're working on. Um, When I look at our data across the district, there are some areas that we're digging into to determine whether or not curricularly, if that's what the question is about, whether or not the curriculum that we're using is giving our students collectively what they need um, to be successful in the overall content. And so there are some areas that we're looking at um, our um, our um, in our district, high schools start at seventh grade. So we're seeing it and still in those middle years, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, that literacy is not as strong as we would look for it to be. Um, and, and neither is math. And so we're growing in the areas, but it's not at the same rate that I anticipate that we will continue to grow in our earlier years in, in, in literacy and in mathematics. Um, so that's so it's hard to say right now that we're leaving that behind, but we're doing deeper study to determine if this is the right resource. And if it is, how do we truly equip teachers to make sure that they have the necessary skills, resources, and professional development that they need to then make sure the students get the information that they need? I think you're speaking to something that I hear all across the country, which is, you know, like we know now what to do for early literacy. We see the, the holes that we have, but there are these kids who kind of like they, the holes still exist, right? Fourth, fifth, okay. sixth, seventh grade they don't have the foundational skills and their teachers don't have either the ability to teach them or the time to learn how to teach them. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. what do you do? And so it's kind of like, we know in a few years, we don't, we aren't going to need this for these kids, but what do we do right now? It sounds like you're talking about, which I think is the problem. If you figure it out, let us know, because I think everyone across the country is talking about it. Well, I think when you start thinking about that middle grades, whether it's literacy, whether it's math, you're right. It really goes back to where students are with the foundational skills. And we know, you know, we hear a lot right now about learning loss and educators have really had experiences with learning loss for a long time. I mean, every summer we're looking at, you know, summer melt or or summer slide and what happens during that time. But the time that we were away from school and out of school as a follow-up to COVID, I don't think that anyone was prepared for what that was really going, what, what was really going to happen as a result of that. And so there are some students that just have huge gaps in learning as a part of that. So we're trying to uh, make sure that we're bridging those gaps. And it really means that you're looking really, really intently at what's happening in tier one instruction or what instruction are all students getting. But what are you doing in tier two, which would really be around remediation? What are you doing in terms of interventions? How are you providing additional support services to students so that they're able to close as many gaps as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So you you mentioned that you're going into your second year ever as a superintendent. Yeah. No, well, you have that other year in Florida as well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But this is your second year running Cincinnati schools. Um, what is one thing that you learned last year that you're definitely going to change for next year? 
Oh my, I had so many lessons from last year. Um, I am just unbelievably passionate about what I do. Um, I love people. I love children, um, but I'm new to Cincinnati. And I do believe that Cincinnati selected me because I was the best choice for the school district. But I'm very different than what, what Cincinnati has had before. And I think it's just because I'm one of the first superintendents in about 20 years that was not a part of Cincinnati Public Schools. So that within itself is a change. I'm the, I, I am the fourth superintendent that the district had in about a five-year period. And so that within itself is a change. So I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about being resilient, um, that, you know, my goal every day is to tick off fewer people today than I did yesterday. So I really try to go through my experiences of not really, you know, um, um, ticking people off. But I use that as an example because it really doesn't matter what decision I make. Someone is not going to like it. And they're going to let me know one way or another that they don't like it. And, and, and so you have to be able to, to take that um, and to deal with that and to accept that and to learn from it. Um, but always keep your eyes on what's best for children. And that's sometimes hard. It's hard for people to, to accept that. Um, I, I go really fast. I run really fast um, because I think that our, our children, they deserve it. You know, they, the, the time is of the essence. We don't have a lot of time with them. And, and every moment is really important that we are maximizing every single opportunity that we have with them. And I believe that to my core. And so I think sometimes my, um, my passion, sometimes my drive, um, is misconstrued as something else. And so this year, I really want to give people more of an opportunity to get to know me, who I am, what drives me, what keeps me motivated, why I do this work every day. And for me, it's only about the kids. I love that you say you want to tick less people off. I think that's super like thoughtful and, and self-reflective. But I will say I heard another superintendent of a big city say this, and I really loved it as well. She said, are kids learning? Is the budget balanced? Then you can like me tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, I think there's some value in that too, of like keeping your eyes on the prize, doing the right thing by kids and letting them, you know, figure out their stuff because I'm sure some of it is their stuff. But I appreciate that you're self-reflective on that. What's one thing you did last year you're really proud of? Oh, um, oh, I have so many points of pride from last year. Um, I think transitioning into the district, um, really making... Um, teaching and learning the focal point for me so that um, everyone understands that that is where we're focused because that is what's going to get us outcomes for children, especially academic outcomes. Um, I, I am very proud that we uh, implemented or, or started a call to action for our community called Be Present. And Be Present really is just about whatever, whatever it is that you do, whoever you are, be present. So whatever present is to you, that's what we want you to do. Our staff is present every day. And so our students are present. We want our, our parents present. Uh, we want them to, if they can volunteer, we want you to volunteer. Um, if you're able to help out at the school, we want you to be able to do that. If you're able to tutor, we want you to do that. But if you're not able to do any of those things, you are able to encourage your child to come to school and do what they need to do while they're in school. And we want to honor the fact that that's present as well. Our community partners are saying, if there is something that you can do at the school, please come and do that. If you have the experience and the willingness, please do that. But if not, stand out as students are walking to the bus stop in the morning and just encourage them as they're on their way to school. So whatever your present is, that's what we want individuals to do. And so from that, um, several other initiatives were born. One of them is CPS Moves, and I'm really excited about that. 
because it's also important that we take care of ourselves, we take care of our minds, and we take care of our bodies. And it's important that we share that with our students. Students are just not getting enough movement. They're not getting enough activity. And so if that is something that we can promote through school, then that's something that we do. So each month, we do a different CPS Moves uh, initiative. We've done hula hooping. We've done steps. Uh, we did, of course, ma- basketball madness. We've done Did you dance. hula hoop? I did not hula hoop that time, but I do get, get all of my other activities in. And But it's, re- it's really been exciting. And we give a, um, a award belt each month to the school that shares the most of those on social media and gets the most likes for those. And then this summer... We really also partnered with the, um, one of the um, um, businesses in the area called Go Vibrant that they focus on a million step challenge for the summer. It ends in September. And so we partnered with that. So it was That's great. awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, let me dig into a couple of things you said. The first thing I heard you say was about parent engagement. And on our podcast, we have superintendents, we have ed tech founders, we have people from nonprofits. And this is a common theme is it's... Parents are super important and they're also really hard to engage. Can you tell me why are they so important? Like why, why can't we just do it all in the school, I guess? And, and why is it so hard sometimes for parents to, for us to engage parents as education leaders or ed tech people or whatever? I think when we think about parents and caregivers, it goes without saying why they're important um, because it's really necessary for us to help families make the school home connection. Right. That it's that we're all in it together for the success of our students. And when we can come together and do that, amazing things happen. So I think that that's one reason that it's really important. We want parents to know. We want them to ask questions. Um, We want them to 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 have knowledge of what their children are working on and what they're doing. And not just when it's negative. We want them to know the good things and how they're able to be involved around the good things. I do think that sometimes we really need to look at national numbers around engagement um, because engagement to us um, and then engagement nationally, when we think about you know, the percentage of parents that are actually involved, they've gone to the school, they've gone, they've done a conference, they're involved in a club and those kinds of things. You know, the, 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 the national numbers are really, really, really small when we think about it. And so really identifying in your own area, in your own district, what engagement looks like to you and how we give parents, quote unquote, credit for being engaged, even if they're not showing up at the school building. So we started this past year, and I'm also proud of this, we started this past year surveying with our families. Um, We survey twice a year, and some of those surveys for families are around the engagement questions that we're talking about right now. Have you gone to the school? Have you been involved in a conference? You know, have you um, made a telephone call? Are you involved in anything virtual because it it begins to change the dynamics of what engagement actually looks like. I think that that they're also, you know, depending on where you are, there are families that would do something if you give them something to do, but they're sometimes working two or three jobs to make ends meet. And so they don't really have time to come to the school and and, and do the things at the school that me, we may want them to do. I remember working at a school as an assistant assistant principal and my my parents 
you know, they were, they were there all the time. I mean, they made copies for the whole school. That was the thing that they did. We didn't need a lot of assistance because our parents were there and they were doing that. That's not the normal experience in, in an urban environment is generally not that experience. So what is it that you can give a parent to do maybe from home that they would be willing to do or that it is something that they can do so that they also get the benefit of engagement as well. And I think the last is it's important that we also recognize families that are engaged and we have to be prepared for what engagement looks like, right? Because there are sometimes, you know, when you when you think about it, and I have all kinds of examples around it, but when you think about it, we're not always prepared for the level of engagement that families are offering or that they can give. And you see it when you go from one school to another or when you go from one environment to another. So making sure that we're parent friendly so that we're able to receive the the the, the engagement, whatever that engagement is, when they begin to do so. I think so much of your message is like show, like meeting people where they are, right? Whether it's parents or your Cincinnati community or your teachers, meeting them where they are. And I think that that's really valuable and difficult. So just like I commend you on that. Um, the other thing you mentioned was social media. And um, I, I think you and I both were at the WLE conference. Um, and, and I hear this a lot from women in leadership roles is social media is either your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on the day. <laughs> And you engage like heavily in social media. So tell me a little bit about that choice and how and what your experience has been. So, you know, I have had a social media presence for a long time. Um, and I remember when I really became more involved in social media, um, I was a high school principal. And at that time, I would post available positions. I would post vacancies and I would ask if anyone knew. And, it, you know, if you know anybody, let me know. I mean, it's like doing everything you can trying to find teachers. And I began to get people by doing that. And so from there, it was really important to me to, to tell our story and to use social media to tell the story because so many people were engaging in the story. And so that was 15, 16 years ago. When I transitioned to Detroit, um, I, after I left Jacksonville, I was the, the chief of schools in Jacksonville, and um, my superintendent became the superintendent in Detroit and recruited me to go to Detroit to be his deputy. And when I got to Detroit, we were rebuilding in a lot of areas, and one of those was our overall presence, and we were rebuilding our brand. And so at that point, I took it upon myself because I was responsible for schools to really begin to tell the DPSCD story through my social media and it began to take on. And so right now, if you go back and hashtag um, DPSCD proud, DPSCD strong, the first place that you see that is from a tweet that I did. And now it's what the district uses as a part of their tagline. And so it was just really important to do. People want to know what you're doing. They want to know what's happening in schools. There is an interest in what it is that you're doing. And transitioning to Cincinnati, it was the same thing. You know, it was my first time as a superintendent. My students are very engaged in social media. And it was an opportunity to tell the story, you know, to, to tell the story and to share with others what that story is about. I, I mentor people all over the country. And what I found that I didn't realize until I started going to conferences and people came up and started talking to me is my social media posts have 
been inspiring to so many people on so many different levels from, you know, just your basic, this is what's happening in the run of a day to as a superintendent, you still have a life. You're still a person. So you still have wonderful things that you want to do and you want to talk about your family and you want to show your running videos or whatever it is, but it lets people know that you, you're a real person. It is a plus and a minus because when you do have a social media presence, you know, if something negative happens, it gives the opportunity for the social media trolls to sit behind the computer screen and to say ugly things. So you have to also know what you're going to respond to and where you're going to cut it off. And so I think that I've, I've figured out how to do that. Well, good for you. I mean, I think I think that's a good message for anyone, right? Teenagers, all your high school students that you're talking about, right? Like you can share, you can give something to community, you can meet people where they are at and let them see a part of you, but let know when it's time to like let them back out. Right. And, and I think that's really great. And I love that you mentioned, you know, as we talked about earlier, I was inspired to do my workout last night because I was looking through your Twitter feed. So it, it means a lot to me too. And I, I totally understand where people are coming from. You kind of um, alluded a little bit to your path to the superintendent. This is your second year being the, the top job in Cincinnati, but before this, and it's so funny because I asked you right before this podcast, I was like, Hey, I want to check because I noticed you weren't the chief of schools for very long in Florida. And you were like, well, actually my superintendent in Florida recruited me to come to Detroit. So you were, right. you, you were like homegrown. You were a teacher in your school district in Florida, right? What did you teach first? What was your first job in Florida? So I was a math teacher. Okay. So you taught high school math, middle school math. I taught high school math first. And then I taught middle school math and science. Okay. For how long did you teach? I taught for six years. Okay. And then if, you, if anyone who's, whoever looks up your resume or whatever, we'll see, then you do like every job in the district, right? right. right? Except I, I haven't seen, I looked for janitor. I couldn't find it. But besides that, and maybe like school, school psychologist, you did everything else and worked your way up. When did you make that move to the district office? So just to give you a little bit more on my story there, that would be beneficial. So when you say I was homegrown, I was completely homegrown. I'm a first generation college student. I had not ever left Jacksonville. I got two degrees at the local university, University of North Florida, a wonderful, wonderful school. I lived at home while I went to school. So I got my first degree, my undergrad degree. I was out of school for two, two weeks and I started working on my master's. Um, I, I was a student in Duval County Public Schools. So my entire life had been in Duval County. Um, my first job in the district was as a bookkeeper. So I wasn't the janitor, but I was the bookkeeper. <laughs> and so I started as, as soon as I graduated from, from college, I had a job for that summer, um, for August, but the school that I did my internship in that I already had a job in to work in in August had a vacancy for a bookkeeper. And the principal said to me, you love numbers. We need a bookkeeper. Will you take the job for a few months? And I said, absolutely. I started working at 14. I did not know what it was like not to have a job. So I continued to work and I worked up until about two weeks before I started teaching. So it's very literal when you say that I was homegrown and very literal uh, when I say that I had spent all of my time and done almost every job in the school district. Um, when I, I, I made my first, it, it was probably, and I always get, get the time turned around just a little bit. I've been here six years, five. So um, about 16 years is, is, I think is about right. When I, my daughters are 23. Oh my goodness, I'm trying to count this out. They're seven and eight. So 
maybe 10 or 12 years um, because in, in Duval County, I was an administrator there and a, a district office administrator there for about four years, I believe it was. And then I spent five years in Detroit as the de deputy superintendent. And now this is my second year here. So when you add all of that time up, uh, that's, how, that's how long it took. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you, okay. Wow. That that's incredible. And I love, I I knew that you, that you started your career there. I didn't know you were a child there as well. So your yeah. children also went to Duval County schools. Absolutely. They graduated from Duval County public schools. I was going to ask you more about Duval, but I've got to know when you made that, that switch from Duval to Detroit, first of all, like how, who did you talk to? Did you make the, were you automatically like ready to go? Like, yes, this is the next step. Or did you have to take a couple of days to think about it? What did you do? Oh, wow. Um, this is, um, so I was offered the opportunity and, um, I thought I've never lived outside of Jacksonville. I've never done it. And, but the largest contingency of my family outside of Jacksonville is in Detroit. So honestly, the first person that I talked to was one of my cousins who, uh, who lives now, he's back in Jacksonville now, but he lived in Detroit for a period of time. And he was a professor at the University of Louisville. And so he, he and I, um, we, since he had been back home, we would meet, you know, about once every other week and just get together for cousin time. I don't have brothers. So my cousins are like my brothers. And, uh, um, and so I talked to him first and I said, you know, I'm thinking about this opportunity. I want to go visit because I had not really been to Detroit only to go through Detroit, even though my family was there, they always came home, came to Jacksonville. And so I said, who do I call? And he, which cousin do I call? Because I don't want the family to know that I'm thinking about this right now. <laughs> so he was the first person that I had a conversation with. Um, and I, I went and visited Detroit and I absolutely fell in love with it when I did. And my next conversation was with my family, um, my, with, with my, um, with my daughters. My daughters were rising 10th and 11th graders at that time. Wow. And yeah. And so we, they knew my aspirations and I remember them saying, you know, mom, we want you to go as long as we don't have to move. And so they stayed with their dad uh, while I went to Detroit and I traveled home almost every weekend until my girls went to college. I think that is so inspiring because I think men do that all the time. They do. And women are afraid of the judgment. You know, I'm sure your daughters got so much more from watching you follow your dreams and they ever could have from what you, you know, would have given them by being there every day, but it's hard. Tell me a little but bit it more. Was, it was really hard um, because I was such an engaged and involved mom. And when I say judgment, I was more concerned. I had more of a challenge with the judgment that I placed on myself than being concerned about what other people thought about me. Um, I, my mom, my sister, they've always been a part of my village. When After I had my girls, when I went back to work, my mother kept my daughters um, while, I, while I worked. And so, you know, when I, I, then I talked to her and she was like, you should do it. I think you should. This is an opportunity for you. So the village really came together for me. Um, and it was hard on me, but it was worth it for my daughters. And I remember when I really released myself from the judgment, was during COVID, um, uh, right after COVID. So we were at home and we were having a discussion. I actually uh, got to Jacksonville 
And I realized that something major was happening because all of my flights started canceling. I would go home on Fridays. I would leave first thing on Monday morning and my flight started canceling. And so I knew that I was going to be grounded for a period of time. And I remember having conversation with my daughters then about, okay, how is this going? How are things working? My older, my younger daughter, my older daughter at that time was already in college. She was a freshman and my baby girl was a senior. And so it was going well for them. Shortly after that, the following year, we were all at home and we were having the conversation and they said, mom, you don't understand um, that we have friends who's their moms, they're in the military and they're gone for six and seven months at a time, or they may not see them for a year. You were home every weekend. As a matter of fact, we saw you more then than we did when you were at home because you came home and you stayed home. So you weren't working, you weren't on the computer, you were really just spending time with us or when they would go to work, when we would go to work and we'd come back, you were just there. And so that that is the moment that I released myself from the judgment of moms don't leave their daughters. Yeah. That's the moment and, that I did. And where are the girls now? So, but both of they're 22 and 23 now. And so my older daughter graduated from college last year with her bachelor, her bachelor's and they both start school again, August the 28th. She's starting in a master's um, JD program at Florida State University. And my baby daughter is entering into her senior year. Uh, she could graduate in December, but she just told me that she's going to wait and graduate in April. And I'm perfectly fine with that. So they're doing really well. Oh, great. So they're doing great and you're doing great. I'm sure you're proud of them and they're proud of you. And they have a lot to be proud of. When I was reading through some of the things that kind of get listed as your um, success stories from Detroit, a lot of them are about creating opportunities for kids. There was like this cultural passport I read about, and there was some things about field trips and getting kids arts and music. Tell me, it's it's rare, I think, for a superintendent or a deputy superintendent to make that their priority. Tell me a little bit about what you came into in Detroit and why why those things happened. So Detroit is a school district that um, had been under emergency management for over 20 years. So they had not had a an actual um, superintendent in a long time. And in 2015, um, they uh, got an, elect, an elected board again, um, kind of restarted the district. So we were rebuilding from the very beginning. There were so many things that the school district had gone through in the era of emergency management. Um, Detroit, the school district had once been a very, very vibrant school district. And so much had just been taken away from the district and from the students. And so it was important that we re rebuild that. And our focus, of course, was children first. And what is it that they need? How are we taking care of, how are we taking care of the whole child? Not just what we're doing for them academically, but what, what experiences are we giving to them? And so that was a part of my work. I was responsible for a whole lot, as I think about it, um, um, for the work that was there. Um, I was responsible for all schools. I did art, music, and physical education. Um, did leadership development, school guidance and counseling, athletics. So you name it, you've seen the resume. And so it was when we think about the part around experiences, what do we need to do differently to in increase the quality of experiences that students are receiving? Not just students that are in high-performing schools or in high-performing environments, but students across the district. And so how do we level the playing field for all children? Cultural Passport was one of those. And so we launched it, I want to say my second year, um, with a soft launch. We only did uh, um, third through fifth grade at that time. And 
Um, they got one experience that year. Uh, they went to, we had 24 different arts partners that they actually went to the field trips. Um, uh, they went, went to field trips at the schools. And then the following year, we really worked in partnership with those organizations to make sure that there was the educational connection to what we were doing in our curriculum and what they were receiving and what they were seeing as they went to the, to the, to the location. And then the next year we went straight K through five and it was three experiences. It was, I had a full-time person in my office that that's exactly what they did. We scheduled them all um, we did all of the contracting that was necessary for them. So it was a wonderful experience. Well, let me ask you something, because I think you hear sometimes, especially in some of those like really hardcore charter networks that like, we don't have time for field trips and for fun and things like that. These kids have to learn. And so tell me, like when you're making that a priority, what's the why that you give to people and how do you explain it to some of the hardcore kill and drill fans? Whole, whole child. I, I, it's the whole child commitment. It's increasing experiences. When we think about testing, and, and, and I'm a data person, and if you really, you know, look at the resume and have conversations with me around data, I believe in data. I believe in the 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 approaches that are necessary to improve outcomes for kids. And so it's not just about moving the numbers, but when data improves, outcomes for children improves, especially when we're talking about academic data. And a lot of times when you're looking at standardized assessments, um, those standardized assessments are built a lot on experiences that our children just don't have. And so some, some children in, in an urban environment, a lot of our children don't have those experiences. So it really becomes an extension of what's happening in the classroom. If they are going to you know, the, 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 the art museum, the ballet, the, right. There is an experience that they're getting from that, that they are then able to take and make a part of who they are because it's something that they have now experienced. So they can talk about it. They can engage around it. They can gain appreciation for it. So it's still learning. And so, so I think that, you know, for those that say, we don't, we don't have time for experiences because we have to do academics. We're missing something there because those experiences, when it's experience, when it's the right kind of experiences, yeah. those experiences add to the learning. And I'm also a proponent of the periodic experiences that are just fun. I mean, kids deserve just to go and have right. fun, whether it's a reward or an end of the year activity, they deserve to do that as well. So I, and I think that those are the things that they also, relationships are built through those kinds of things. Um, the, the, Core the memories have the memories that they have from that are really 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 important I think about it with my daughters it was really important to me um, that as my girls were growing up that we did you know during spring breaks we did some you know nice vacations because I remember being a child being in school and my family um, we would do some traveling, but we would always be in a car and I would talk to my friends in school and they had all of these exotic vacations. They were going skiing. They had gone skiing for, for, you know, for, for spring break. And I remember saying at that time, I'm going to give my kids those experiences. And I may have been in the fourth grade at that point, but I was already thinking about being a mom. And when I got to that point, even though I was work, 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 um, it was important for me to give them those experiences. And now those are some of the most rewarding things, hearing them talk about the experiences. My, my younger daughter, I didn't realize it until just a few years ago, but every one of our trips, she made some kind of little movie from the trip and she kept the movies. And so she began to share them a few years, and it's been longer than a few years ago now, maybe it's been about 10 years ago, but she began to share them the movies that she had made. 
And it was just very rewarding. So I think our students deserve the same thing. Well, and I think, you know, some of what you're pulling on across this conversation is just the complexity of your job, right? So we talked about talking about school buses and transportation to charter schools. And then we've talked about, you know, standardized tests and the scores and and hiring teachers and using social media to hire teachers, Um, moving across the country, leaving your children at home in order to, you know, follow your aspiration. And then here also like creating the opportunities for every single child, right? And not just the academics, but also that they can have these conversations when they go to college, they've seen art, they know things, right? And it makes me think of this. I, I saw this, I think on one of your posts that Chiefs for Change had this quote that was like, the, the K-12 superintendent job is more complex than ever. And so my question to you is, is that true? And two, how do you manage that? It is 100% true um, because it's not just it's not just about what's happening for students academically. It never has been, right? It's always been about all of the other experiences and all of the other things that need to happen to make sure that you are supporting students and families. I think at this point, though, it has become as much of a focus, the, the mental health that's necessary in, in, in our instances, um, even the physical health that's necessary. Um, it's become equal to simply running the school district in terms of what's happening academically. It's equal to that. And as a re- and, and 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 coupled with that, the you know the 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 political focus is at an all time high right now. Um, the work that's necessary to do with board members is is one that is um, really one that really you have to focus on because regardless to what school district you're in, if you're working with with a um, with an elected board, um, then the board actually reports to the community, right? So you have individuals that have varying varying wants, varying needs, but they really all want what's best for children. So it's how you bring all of those things together so that you're really able to work as a team in doing what's necessary to work with kids. But it's really, really tough. Um, and then I think the last thing is there's always there are always individuals that haven't done the job to tell you how to do the job, right? So there are people that are watching and they're monitoring and they're saying, well, if, if this were me, I would do X, Y, Z. It's always easier to say what you do when it's not you and you've never done it. And so all of those things together make it really, really challenging. I think what um, what I do um, specifically, I think it's important that you have um, individuals, whether that's an executive coach, uh, whether that's a mentor, but you have someone that's done the role that you can talk to they're vested in you and they're vested in the work that you're doing and have a conversation with them. I think that that's one. I think the second is having a support system within the educational arena. Uh, there are a group of young, a group of ladies. We, we, we have coined ourselves as the sister soups, um, but we talk almost every day. It's through social, it's through, it's through an app, but we talk almost every day. It doesn't matter what the challenge is there is someone else that has gone through that. So it doesn't have to be lonely. Um, You know, people say it's lonely in the top job. It doesn't have to be when you surround yourself with other people that have had some of those experiences and you're willing to say, hey, I need help with this. Can you help me? The other thing that's important for me is self-care. 
because I've learned, I've not always, I've run for a long time, um, but I've not always focused on my personal self-care. I was so busy um, focusing on the work and making sure that every waking moment I'm focused on the work. And I would take time away periodically, but I've really begun to prioritize that. And not just for myself, I encourage my team to do the same thing. Take a vacation. You need to take off. Don't call me when you're on vacation. There's anything <laughs> talk about. And if we can't figure it out with you being gone for 10 days, we are really in trouble already. So take some time off, spend time with your family or anybody in your life that you love. Do find what it is that you really enjoy and do it uh, and do it. Make, make, make sure that you do and do it unapologetically. And, and so I think that those things are really important. Self-care for me is the time with my family, talking to my daughters, you know, so whatever it is that works for you, do it. I think that last piece, the unapologetically, like giving yourself the grace to do what you need to do and do and take good care of yourself and get the connections that you need to is, is exactly right. And I think a lot of us, myself included, needed to hear that today. So thank you so much. We are low on time. So I'm going to move us straight to our five. This has been just such a great conversation. So inspiring. All of the sacrifices you've made, all the ways that you've put kids first. Again, just thank you so much. But we have five questions um, that we ask every guest. And so I'm going to ask you those five questions now. So the first one is the podcast is called More Than a Test. The reason we call it that at Amira is because uh, we believe in the next generation of assessment should be every day, not three times a year, showing us what we know kids know and how can we can help teachers be better. But every guest think it mean, thinks it means something else. So when you heard more than a test, what did it mean to you? I think when I heard more than a test, it meant just that, that school is about more than just the test that, that you take the three times a year, but it's about all those other things that come together to make for a real experience. That's awesome. All right. Think about one literary moment in your life. And so that what we say mean by that is a moment of you and a book that like you hold dear or that changed you, something that happened for you. So it's funny when people ask me this question, but my all time favorite book is The Scarlet Letter. Uh, so much so if you if I if I pan the camera, there is a, a poster on my wall um, when I when I left Duval County, one of my teachers actually framed it for me. Um, it was, I don't know, it was one of my favorite books. I read it in, in my AP English class. Ms. Matthews was my teacher at the time. And I fell in love with it. I connected with just all of the ways that she was ostracized and how important it is that as we move forward, that we, all of us wear a scarlet letter for something, but it doesn't have to be that way. And how do we operate with grace? And that was as a, a 10th grader, but it's still one of my favorite books of all time. Ooh, I'm going to use that line. All of us wear a scarlet letter for something. I really like that. All right. A piece of technology you really love. Oh my, I'm a techie. So I love, I love it all. <laughs> I, don't, I love it all. I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a techie. I just got a brand new phone, nice big screen. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I, I, I am, I'm a PC person. And so I do more with PC, um, okay. but I love it all. Awesome. All right. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of people who think that someday they'd like to be a superintendent or be as brave as you are. What was the best advice you've ever been given? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Oh, that's really good. I'm going to write that one down too. Um, and one book you think everyone should read. All the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> All the Places You'll Go on the Scarlet Letter. That's what we're going to walk away with. That's <laughs> right. Love. That's right. So different, but yes, that's it. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I think it's been really important for me. I can't wait for the people of Cincinnati to hear it and just hear about all the great things you're doing. Um, and for me as a mother, as an education enthusiast, as a previous principal, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.